We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, seven passages were read from the Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, chapter 26, verses 69 through 75, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20, and Romans chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Janelle and I have this friend, and she has the most incredible waking up routine. When she starts to stir, her husband brings her a cup of coffee and the paper in bed. And for about 30 minutes, she she looks at the paper and drinks her coffee, and then she takes a nap, about a 15 or 20-minute nap. (laughs) Then she showers and dresses and, and does all of that kind of stuff. And in the meantime, her husband is cooking her breakfast. So after she's kind of gone through her showering and all routine, she has her breakfast. And while she's eating breakfast, um, he's packing her lunch for work. And then she goes to her favorite chair and she reads her Bible for a little while. All in all, this is like a two and a half hour process. Rain or shine, vacation or home, it doesn't matter. It's just like this. Rebecca, this is sort of how things go in your house. (laughs) What happens when you wake up? Now, for some of us, waking up is a rude and shocking experience, right? Off goes the alarm, you jump up in fright, dragged out of deep sleep to face the cold, cruel light of day, right? Now, but for others, it's this slow, quiet process. There's this whole period of time where you're half asleep and you're half awake, you're not sure which is which, until gradually eventually, without any kind of shock or resentment, you're happy to know a new day has begun and you're there to meet it. Now, most of us have experienced waking up at both ends of that kind of spectrum and a whole lot of places in between. Tonight's sermon is the second sermon in a series that that we're calling Discovering Christianity. And last week, we looked at the heart of Christianity, which is the gospel of God's kingdom. And we saw that Jesus began his public ministry, this verse in Mark chapter 1, 15, where Jesus says, first thing out of his mouth when he starts his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we saw that this verse is packed with all kinds of references to a bigger story so that the gospel is the good news that God, the world's creator, has fulfilled his ancient promises by sending Jesus Christ, his son, to deal with our two great enemies, sin and death. And in doing this, he's kick-started his new creation. So tonight, we're going to continue our series by discovering How does a person enter into the kingdom of God? Or another way of putting it, how does a person become a Christian? And waking up is an excellent picture of what it's like to 
to enter God's kingdom. That, that's what we heard in Havilah's passage of Scripture, Romans 13. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And this is an image that the first Christians used over and over and over again to talk about becoming a Christian, this idea of waking up. Now, when it comes to becoming a Christian, there are alarm clock stories, right? Like this passage that Houston read to us about Saul. He's traveling down the road to Damascus, and then suddenly he's blinded by this light, and and, and he has this overwhelming kind of experience where he suddenly discovers that Jesus Christ is God. And it shakes him to the core of his being, and he's yanked into the kingdom, and his life is never the same. He never looks back. And there are millions of people all around the world, there are lots of people here in Birmingham, who their conversion is like that. It's this kind of rude awakening to a whole new world. On the other hand, um, there are people who, in their coming to faith, is more like those passages that Cora read to us about Peter. When did he convert? Was it when, when Jesus said, come and follow me, and he dropped everything and followed him? Or was it a little bit later when he realized, oh, you're God? Or was it a little bit after that when he kind of totally messed up and cowardly turned his back on Christ? But then Christ comes to him and forgives him, and he embraces that forgiveness. Or was it even after that when he received the gift of the Spirit? See, for a lot of people, coming to faith is like that. For Peter, it must have been around, it appears to us, a three-year journey over the course of months and years. And for some people, even decades, they gradually come to a faith in Christ. There's an initial stirring. And then the long, slow process, whether half asleep or half awake and somewhere in between, And just like Peter, at times it looks like they're on the outside of the Christian faith looking in, and then at other times they feel like they're on the inside looking around, trying to to figure out, is this real or not? Christian conversion, it's the way into the kingdom of God. So let's turn to a place in the Bible that gives us a kind of microscopic view of the inner kind of cell structure that's involved in conversion. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. This is an up-close analysis of precisely what happens in this process that we call conversion. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is at the conclusion of a sermon that Peter preached. He's just announced the good news that Jesus is the world's true king. He's defeated evil and death, and he's setting up his kingdom, his rule, his reign over the whole cosmos. And let's pick up at the end of this sermon with where Peter kind of gives his climactic statement, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now look how the people respond. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, See your, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, when we put this passage of Scripture under the microscope, like I said, we can see the inner structure of conversion. It's a protracted series of events that involves a cluster of interrelated and interdependent elements. Belief, repentance, trust, commitment, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, and incorporation into the church. Seven elements. Seven elements that taken together constitute conversion. Now, we're going to look briefly at each one of these elements, and then at the end, I'm going to talk about the journey that people go on as they begin to wake up to God's kingdom and experience each of these elements. First of all, belief. Peter's whole sermon is about the fact that Jesus is God, that he was sent to fulfill God's promises to rule and reign as the king of the world. Just look at the climax of the sermon, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is when the crowd is cut to the heart, And they ask, what do we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. To convert, to be a Christian, there are certain things that you must believe. We must believe that Jesus is who he said he was. In Saul's conversion, this is the big thing. Remember chapter 9 of Acts, verse 5, when Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. Saul already believed in God. He already trusted in God. But this issue, it wasn't there for him. In fact, all of the many gospel sermons recorded in Scripture center on this, that Jesus is God. And we must believe that to be a Christian. And we must believe that we need salvation and that Christ secured that salvation for us on the cross and rising from the dead. And we must believe that in Christ, God's kingdom has come. This is in every passage we heard tonight, and it is the minimum level of belief required to be a Christian. Now, there's a maximal level of belief. There's a whole lot of things that are beyond that that Christians believe, but that is the minimum level of belief to cross the threshold of conversion. Second, repentance. Remember what Peter said to the crowd? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. When you hear the good news, at some point, in a profoundly personal way, 
God makes you acutely aware of your sins. And so you confess to God. But the repentance we're talking about when we're talking about crossing the threshold, it's not just confessing a lie or some anger or something like that. The repentance we're talking about here goes much, much deeper. It's confessing all of those things other than God that you have been relying on for your satisfaction and for your security and for your significance. It it means that we repent not only for the things we've done wrong, like cheating or lying, but our repentance has to go all, all the way down to our motivations. Repentance, it involves remorse, feeling bad for my sins, and confession of those sins to God, and a rejection of that way of living and hoping and finding my significance. So what am I going to rely on when I reject my old way of hoping and finding significance and security? Well, there's another element of conversion. It's trust, the third element. It's this radical dependence on God. To trust the one who made you. To place your faith in Him alone. To trust deep in the core of your being that He forgives you. This is hugely important. To know that you are more wicked than you have ever dared imagine. But at the exact same time, you are far more loved and accepted than you've ever hoped. To trust that your sins are no longer held against you, that you are free from the burden of your guilt. This is what Peter means when he tells the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The fourth element of conversion is commitment. To transfer your allegiance to Christ. It's an act of surrender, a fundamental change of loyalty. From now on, Jesus is the ultimate and final authority. Again, listen to Peter's words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. To be baptized into His name, it's like bending your knee down and swearing fealty to Him, swearing allegiance him. And this transfer of loyalty, as we look at the scriptures as a whole, it tends to work itself out into one of two primary areas when we're talking about crossing the threshold of conversion. The first area is with regard to our moral life. To bend the knee to Christ is to swear allegiance to Christ that His view of morality is right. It's to yield to Him in terms of of what is ethically right and wrong. Secondly, it's a a swearing of loyalty in terms of the focus of your life. That God and His kingdom are no longer a compartment. They're no longer that hour religious kind of time on Sunday, but, but it's what moves into the center of your life and reigns over every compartment of your life. A fifth element of conversion when we look at Peter's sermon and when we look at the conversion of of Saul and the conversion of Peter and other conversions in the Bible, the fifth element is baptism. Again, listen to what Peter said. 
When they asked the question, what should we do? What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not optional. It's more than a symbol. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus puts it this way, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, in this room tonight, we're from several different traditions. Some of us have grown up Catholic or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or whatever. And, and, and if you're from the Baptist tradition, this part of it has some difficulties. But if you're Episcopalian or Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or whatever, it's no big deal. But what, what we all need to see is this. Baptism is an essential element of an appropriate response to God's work in your life. Now, the sixth element is this, receiving the Holy Spirit. Again, Peter's words, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. In coming to Christ, we can and must receive the Holy Spirit. This is integral to the conversion process. One more element, number seven, incorporation into the Christian community. This is all over the scripture, but just one place is at the end of Peter's sermon. So those who received his word, verse 41, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's incorporation into a local church, a community of Christians. It's an essential part of conversion, of coming to faith. Now, being part of a church does not stand alone. Just like believing in God, does, or just like repentance, or just like baptism. None of these elements in and of themselves constitute conversion unless you're using it to speak of the whole passel. And this is why when we find places in Scripture, sometimes they refer to the conversion process using just one or two of these elements as a kind of code for the whole thing. But when we take all of the conversion narratives in the Bible and we lay them out and we try to come to grips with their inner structure, we see that indeed conversion, it's these seven elements. But, but you shouldn't think of them as a ladder. You don't move cleanly and neatly from one to the other, ticking them off like, you know, a checklist. The order of these elements, the way in which they occur, the pace at which they unfold, it's always different. It's like a tennis match. A tennis match is a tennis match, but no two tennis matches are ever exactly the same, right? They occur within a boundary, within a set of rules, but how each one plays out is as unique as a fingerprint. And how any given person's conversion occurs is as unique as a fingerprint. One of the worst things that's happened to evangelicals, and you pick your stripe, okay, is that they, they take one particular pattern of conversion and they make it universal and they insist that everyone kind of undergo that version of conversion in order to be a Christian. And so some kind of major on baptism or others kind of major on some kind of cataclysmic moment where you pray some certain prayer or you got dunked here or you went to this class or you drank this or you, you did whatever. But when we look at the scripture, we see that conversion, it's all of these elements 
and it's like a fingerprint. And entering into God's kingdom, it's not simply a decision about a few propositions. Genuine conversion shakes us and it reshapes our intellect in our will, in our heart, and deep down, in authentic conversion, your very soul is transformed with a whole series of encounters with Jesus Christ. In fact, each of these seven elements of conversion, they're really, each one, a form of commitment on a sliding scale. This is what I mean. At one point, it may be impossible for you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But as weeks and months or years go by, you find flickering moments of belief against a constant backdrop of disbelief. And then you discover one day that you're inclined to believe and and your skepticism is getting milder. Or maybe you wish Christianity was true, but you struggle and you have agony over your doubts, belief and unbelief. These are not all or nothing categories. And that's so important. And that's something that, for example, if you're in kind of a tradition that's been deeply shaped by revivalism, you tend to make belief or unbelief this black and white line. But it's a sliding scale. And all of us, we have a unique journey of faith with subtle textures that make us who we are. Now, don't get me wrong. There's such a thing as being asleep and being awake, and before you drive a car, you need to make sure you're awake. And that's part of the reason for tonight's message, because it's important to be sure you're awake by the time you have to get up and be ready for action. So if you're Amanda, and you know that takes two hours, then you have a responsibility to the world that before you get behind your car, right, you go through your routine. It's important to pay attention to what God is doing in your life. Teenagers, this is a big part of what it means to go through adolescent spirituality. As you begin to be responsible for responding to God's unique work in your life. And maybe you used to have no problem with trusting God, but all of a sudden it's a lot easier to find your significance elsewhere. Or maybe you used to believe like I I grew up believing, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, holy cow, this is weird stuff. This is adolescent spirituality. It's coming to embrace the faith. And kids, this is so important about being a child. It's paying attention to how God is at work in your life. But for all of us, when it comes to our conversion, we've got to just trust God. It's a journey, and it's in His hands. And our job, think of conversion this way. Conversion is my response to God's work in my life. Conversion is me paying attention to where I am in this kind of inner structure of being born into the kingdom. So what about it? What's God doing in your life? Have you been converted? Have you been dragged out of a deep sleep and you're half awake or maybe somewhere in between? Maybe you're inclined to believe, but you're struggling with 
I don't know, pick another element, repentance or maybe you're, you've, you're stuck at the whole belief thing. All of a sudden, this is weird stuff. We actually believe God became human and rose from the dead. That's weird. And you just can't bring yourself to believe that this guy walking around some dusty road in Palestine 2,000 years ago is actually God. Or that he really died and came back to life. Or, or maybe that's a given for you, but trusting him to forgive you for some terrible thing you've done. Easy now. That's where the brakes are. Here, here's my conversion experience, okay? My own journey into the kingdom. As best I can figure it, I think it lasted about 15 or 16 years. I cannot ever remember a time in my life where I did not believe in Christ. I grew up in an incredible Christian home. I've never in my life heard my parents raise their voice. I've never seen them yell. I mean, I just, it was this kind of leave it to beaver. I've seen my parents walk away from from fortune in order to serve God. I mean, in incredible ways. And so I've always believed. And when I was around three years old, I began to confess publicly that I was a Christian, which was hard for Baptists because we don't believe in baby baptism and threes like in that quasi stage. So for a couple of years, I was confessing this. And then finally, around the age of seven, I was baptized and formally incorporated into the life of the church. And as a teenager, there are these like couple of years where things just got weird and I began to find my significance in other things. But around the age of 17, I had this kind of um, really profound experience of repentance and swearing loyalty to Christ. And somewhere in there, I received the Holy Spirit. And, and things have never been the same. I, I, I mean, I prayed a lot of times before then, God, forgive me, I'm going to try to do right. But I turned some sort of corner there. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying I've never looked back. But it wasn't until I was 21 years of age. I was already a minister when I really came to grips with forgiveness. And I went through a several-week period of time of not even being able to mention a great sin in my life to the Lord because I could not let him forgive me. But after a couple of weeks, all of a sudden I reached this place where I was like a beggar on the street and all I could do was ask him for forgiveness and know I could never pay it back. Now I think, in a nutshell, that that was my conversion journey. And my first major response was as a little kid confessing faith in Christ. And I was a part of a church that said, oh, that's when I became a Christian. But as I look back over the whole kind of sweep of it, it really, when I look at the New Testament and what it says about conversion, it wasn't until 21. Think of conversion like parentheses. If conversion is my response to God's work in my life, it was around three or four that I began to enter that parentheses and began to respond to God drawing me into the kingdom. And it was around 21 when I kind of um, emerged from that process. Where are you 
in the journey. Maybe you wish you could have faith, but you don't. I recently read of a woman who prayed over and over, God, help me to find you. But she got nowhere. And finally, a Christian friend came along and suggested to her that she change her prayer. And instead of praying, God, help me to find you, the friend said, why don't you pray, God, come and find me. After all, you are the good shepherd who goes looking for lost sheep. And the woman wrote, the only reason I can tell this story is because he did. Now, we didn't look tonight at this passage of Scripture in John 3 that is a fascinating kind of dialogue Jesus has with a guy named Nicodemus about this subject of conversion. But listen to this one really kind of incredible thing that Jesus says to old Nick about what it's like to enter the kingdom. He says, Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, You cannot see the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it's come from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let let me close by saying this. Coming to faith is dependent on God working in your life. In fact, there comes a moment in everyone's conversion where you begin to fathom how enormous the alienation is between you and God and how deep your brokenness goes all the way down, even beyond your motives. And you realize that there can be no journey to God without God's help. But look at it on the flip side of things. Part of what that means is this. If you are on the journey to God, that in and of itself is evidence that God is at work in your life. This is what Jesus said to Peter when he confessed that Jesus was actually God. Remember Cora read this in Matthew 16? Jesus said, Peter... Blessed are you. Flesh and blood could not have revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, wherever you are in this journey, if you've got belief but you're struggling with faith, you need to know that that belief is evidence that God Himself is at work in your life. So don't stress out. Relax. Be patient. Not a lazy patience. But trust in God to lead you at His journey. So, teenagers, listen. It is common to being a teenager to begin to struggle with things you used to take for granted. Just be honest about it. And recognize that that's the pressure point of God in your life right now. Talk with a Christian friend. The manuscript of my sermon tonight, it's, on, it's online. It's on the website. You can print it out. You can prayerfully look through these seven elements and ask God to help you see where you are in the journey. Contact me or Robert or Cora or anyone else that you know who loves the Lord. Let's get coffee together. The journey of faith, you can't do it alone.
The journey of faith is personal. It's unique, like a fingerprint, but it is not individual. It does not occur alone. Now, next week, we're going to begin to talk about sharing faith. This has huge implications for what it means to share Christ. Because if conversion's a journey, then my primary job in sharing Christ is to pay attention to where Christ is at work in other people's life and come alongside them there at that moment. This is why Jesus never shares the gospel the same way twice, because he never encounters the same person twice, right? Remember the old Greek philosopher, you can't step in the same river twice? Why is Jesus always different when he encounters people and invites them into the kingdom? Because he's sensitive to the Spirit, and he's paying attention to what point in the conversion process God is working in their life. This is why canned approaches leave the taste of ash in our mouth. Huge implications there for what it means for us to be parents, isn't it? As a parent, my job is to pay attention to where Christ is at work in Spencer's life and to fan that into flame and not force my conversion journey on her and not assume that with five kids they all should make some sort of statement at five years old or seven years old. One might be 17, right? Why? Because we are incredibly complex people. At least my wife is. I don't know about the rest of you. But we're all so unique. The good news is, God works in our life, and our job is to just respond, not where we wish we were, but where God is working now, and leave the rest in His hands. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you put both stories in the Bible, Peter and Paul. Help us in our church, Father, to let people come to faith in their own unique ways. God, I pray for our children and our teenagers as they begin to embrace the faith as an adult, that we would be gentle and discerning in their lives. And help all of us, help our teenagers and and us and the adults, help all of us when we're talking to our friends about you to listen more than we talk. And Father, I pray that this church would be a church that you would choose to honor by bringing many to faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.